Well, this morning we are going to be in Matthew chapter 2 and Micah uh, chapter 5. Uh, it's just really, uh, if you find Matthew chapter 2, uh, you can just flip over just a little bit and you'll find your way to Micah chapter 5. And while you're doing that, let me give you a slight bit of a panic. Uh, Christmas is 15 days away. Uh, so if you're not ready yet, you need to get there uh, and uh, figure things out. And uh, as you're figuring that out, let me remind you that Christmas Eve, uh, we will meet at four o'clock that afternoon or evening. Uh, and typically we will not meet at 10 o'clock that morning. Uh, and typically what we have is about uh, a service that lasts right at an hour. And we try to respect your time that evening and try to make sure that you're able to get back with family and friends. And maybe you have traditions uh, with your family for dinner that night. Maybe you play games. Uh, maybe uh, you watch a Christmas movie, uh, you share your favorite Christmas memory, uh, maybe it's a time where you uh, gather with family and bicker about sports and players, right? Maybe you have the conversation of uh, who is the GOAT, the greatest of all time. And, and you could uh, separate that into different categories, right? Maybe Christmas Eve, you throw this one out, just who is the GOAT, right? Who is the GOAT? Uh, and then the conversation will go to maybe LeBron or Michael, uh, maybe uh, Messi or Ronaldo for the three people that care. Uh, maybe Leonardo or Raphael, the artist and the Ninja Turtle, right? Um, maybe uh, you get to things that, that no one else even understands, like operating systems and engines and musicals, right? Things that like are obscure, uh, or maybe you talk about uh, and find the greatest of all time. And today uh, we have that conversation, who is the king that sits on the throne that's undisputable? And if because you're in church this morning, you think to yourself, maybe I should answer Jesus, you would be correct. But I think there's some reasons why. And I also think that we should do the work to think through this term, king. It's something that's very different for our culture. It's something that probably our culture doesn't necessarily relate to in all the aspects. Even countries in the world that have still a king operate very differently than ancient kingdoms and ancient kings. And so let's look at this, uh, this term that scripture uses uh, for Jesus called the king, the king, the goat, the greatest king, the only king of all time. So we start today in Matthew chapter two, and it's a really familiar story, maybe one that you read uh, many, many times when you were a kid. It's the story of what we would call the wise men coming to worship Jesus, coming to see uh, the, the promised Messiah. And so we pick up Matthew chapter two, uh, verse one. It says this, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So initially already we have a controversy. We have a conversation. Who is going to be the king? Who is the greater king? Who is the one who sits on the throne? So in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? So I, Already in just one verse, in just this little sentence, we have a conversation and a controversy. We have two kings and one throne. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, 
he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. You, you think to yourself, why, why would the king Herod be troubled at a little child, a little baby born a king? Despite their pagan background and powerful influence in the Babylon or Persian courts, the, the Magi, I think, recognize and worship Christ for who he is. And despite his role and legally installed ruler of Israel and this professed conversion to Judaism, Herod rejects this newborn king already and plots to destroy him. He fears that this young boy will threaten his royal position and authority. And the words here, some texts kind of vary on this. They say troubled or they say disturbed. I would make a case that it's far too weak of a translation. Uh, what Herod is feeling right now. I, I think it's more like in turmoil or terrified when I go back to the text. He's terrified of a little baby boy. Think about this. Not because of a boy was born, not because uh, of some genetic line, but because he knows deep down inside that this boy is not just a child, he's a king. And it threatens everything that he is and everything that he's about. Also, we see this, uh, this term, all of Jerusalem probably refers more likely than, than all of the people to the religious rulers uh, and the leaders who dominated the city, many who were personally installed by Herod. And so Herod wants more information about who is this king. So he gathers all the religious leaders. The, he gathers the, the priests and the scribes of the people, the people of the Jewish nation, the people who have been waiting for this Messiah. And he asks this question. He gathers them in verse 4, gathering them all together, chief priests, scribes of the people. He has this massive meeting and he inquires them, he says, of where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem, of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. So Herod, terrified in turmoil, gathers anybody who has any kind of religious uh, information and information about this Messiah. They flip back to a prophet who wrote about 800 years prior, the prophet Micah. Think about 800 years. That would be more than the United States, the history of the United States, three times over. 800 years. And they flip back, they dust off the pages, and they say, here's what it says. And you, O Bethlehem, land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler, a king, who will shepherd my people Israel. So, so Micah is going to reference this prophecy, and I'm going to read part of it, more of Micah chapter 5, uh, about this siege against the citizens of Jerusalem. And most likely, uh, Micah is prophesying about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Neo-Babylon army uh, that comes in at about 588 BC. And if so, he's referencing Israel's uh, ruler, uh, Zedekiah, which would be the last ruler, the last king of Judah who Nebuchadnezzar blinded. He gouged out his eyes, took his throne, and that was the end of Israel's rulers. So he's prophesying about the end of any rule and reign that Israel would have. And so this is what he says in Micah chapter five. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They've laid siege against us. 
talking about Nebuchadnezzar, with a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel, to be king in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. So Micah quotes the Lord directly and this sharp contrast is drawn between the weak and helpless ruler in verse one to this strong messianic king and ruler of this announcement, the Christ. So the Lord announces his birthplace as this Davidic roots would be in Bethlehem. There's a change from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, Ephrathah or fruitfulness is either another name for Bethlehem or this district which Bethlehem would be located in. And since it's this tribal territory of Judah, it's also called Bethlehem or Judah and Bethlehem and Judah. Compared to Jerusalem, who was magnificent in buildings and structure and, and, and uh, organization and uh, politics and all the things, Bethlehem is characterized as small. If you remember the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. This probably applies to both the size and significance. Yet in spite of this, it's the birthplace of David and Jesus. I love this promise that Micah gives on behalf of the Lord. From you, one will go forth from, for me. Did you catch this? That, that Micah is speaking from the mouth of God here and he's saying, from you, O Bethlehem, one will go forth for me. God is going to send a ruler for himself to be a representative of himself. There will be a king that will one day rule and reign. And this was Herod's concern. Who can be born a king? And so I think for us, I think we need to pay special attention to what does it mean to be a king? What does this kingship apply? What does it mean and what does it demand? I think one of the first things is the establishment of the king. Jesus wasn't only referred to as king, but Jesus actually stated himself that he was a king. Now, I want you to get this, because if we're going to talk about what a king does, it's one thing if someone else says uh, to you, I'm, uh, I know the greatest guitar player that ever lived, right? That's their opinion, right? It's, it's what they think, and they might be able to get, give reasons, but it's another thing for a person to say something like that about themselves. I am the best guitar player that has ever lived. Well, you must prove it then. You must demonstrate why you believe this about yourself. And so I think it's one thing for others, especially 800 years before Jesus, to say there's going to be a king born. It's a different thing if Jesus accepts this title and um, gives himself this title. And we see this towards the end of Jesus' earthly life in John chapter 18, verse 33. You probably remember this passage where Pilate's interrogating Jesus before the crucifixion, but you might not remember what he said. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you this about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? 
And Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Jesus alludes to a different kingdom. He alludes to the position that he holds and the throne that he sits on, but he has not said it yet. He says that, that he rules in this kingdom that is over this earthly kingdom, but he's not said the word king yet. So Pilate asks him and he makes him get specific. So he says, so are you a king? And Jesus says, you have said correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I've come into the world to testify the truth that everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So not only did Jesus identify himself as a king, he designated himself as a king whose kingdom is superior to this world, superior to any king who sits on any throne of this world. He's the king of a greater kingdom. I want you to notice verse 2 of Micah again. He says this, uh, chapter 5, From you one will go forth for me to be ruler or king in Israel, and his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So kingship is this identity that Jesus carries from eternity. From eternity, from the, before the earth was spoken into existence, Jesus is king. And long after this world passes by, Jesus is still king. I want you to notice again the, the words of Matthew in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king? See, a president is elected in his position, something that comes and goes, but kingship is what a person is born into. They're always the king. And I think we have trouble understanding this aspect of how uh, they affect people and kingdoms. We're a society that's beyond this idea of a king and, and, and the, the absolute rule, the absolute authority, the absolute dominion over that kingdom. We have trouble understanding who a king is and what he does, but when Jesus calls himself the king, he's not just coming up with a catchy title, he's making a statement that he is above all things. And so I want to talk about a few things, what Jesus' kingship implies, especially in this moment of Israel for this. The one is this, that a kingship implies that, uh, that he will conquer. See, there's a, there's a moment where I'll give you a passage. Second Samuel chapter 11. Watch this. Uh, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabah and David stayed at Jerusalem. Scripture says these words. It came about in the spring when kings go out to battle. So one of the responsibilities of a king was always to be pushing back and guarding their kingdom, pushing back those who were trying to invade that kingdom. And so they would go out literally at a time of year and they would push back those enemies of the nation. It's almost like when, when you go out in your spring and you're, you know, maybe you love your lawn and you are the king, you're the king of your lawn, right? And that pre-emergent at that time of year, right? It's like you put it out and it's going to knock back all the enemies of that luscious green grass in a much more violent way. 
the kings would go out in the spring and they would push back the enemies of the kingdom. This is what they did every year. They would go out, as the Bible indicates, they would go out this time of year and they would push back and they would conquer lands. They would conquer the enemies of the nation. And here's what I love about this. As king, Jesus defeated death and hell on the cross. And he's defeating death's grip on us daily through the spirit that will ultimately eliminate all those who oppose him and threaten his people. You remember what uh, Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, now, uh, but this has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who's abolished death, who has conquered death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Here's what this should mean to us in this season. And this is what we should remember. As king, Jesus conquered our greatest and most fierce enemy, death and sin. As king, Jesus conquered our greatest and most fierce enemy. It's not that he just did it in, in only a holistic sense, although he did. Did you know that as king, Jesus conquered the chains that bind you in your sin? He gives you the ability and the hope not to be sentenced to death through that sin. I think so often we forget this about Jesus, that he has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has placed his stamp and his signet ring on life and eternal life. He has come to give us life, he says. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but he has come to give us life, an abundant life. As king, Jesus conquers our greatest enemy and our most fierce enemy. And it's because kingship applies and implies this absolute authority. The, will, the king has his will and it is supreme. Notice this claim that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 28. He says, and Jesus came and spoke to them and saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's a bold claim. It's a really, really bold claim that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in this kingdom and the superior one. I command angels. I command authorities. I speak in storms quiet. I speak and demons flee. Jesus says there's, there's nothing that, that is past my authority. Jesus had authority over creation and nature itself. He defied the laws of physics on one, more than one occasion. And he has the authority over sickness and death when he healed the sick and raised the dead to life. Jesus has the, the authority over supernatural when he commands these demons to, to flee someone and they run off a cliff. It's not just that Jesus spoke these words. He demonstrated these words over and over and over again. And so I wonder when Jesus speaks these words, even still true today, if we make room. We sing this song, prepare him room. Let the king of glory enter in. I wonder if we're willing to give up our authority so that he can demonstrate his. Our authority in the things that we hold on to the authority that we think things are so incredibly important, the idols that we just churn in our hearts. I wonder if we give that over to him and let the king sit on the throne. 
See, as Jesus, as king, Jesus has absolute authority over all things. Think good kings certainly consider the wishes and the well-being of their subjects, but in the end, it's always the king's will that's done. And thankfully, we have a good king. We have a good king who promises us to walk with us in the darkest moments of life. Next week, the, the passage continues as he says, and this king will rule and he will shepherd my people. Do you remember what it's like to be a shepherd? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. He makes these promises to, to make us lie down in green pastures and to, to place us beside still waters. Why? To restore our souls. We have a good king. We have a good king who loves us, who lays his life down for us. But yet sometimes it's still very difficult, nearly impossible for our earthly minds and our earthly wills to lay down our authority and say, God, your will be done. On earth, in my life, as it is in heaven. What I love about Jesus is most often, he waits very patiently. There's times in my life where Jesus has forced me into that place of submission. And most often, he gently waits and whispers. I'm right here. I'm waiting and I'm willing. I wonder what place in your life Jesus may be waiting for you to hand over your authority so he can demonstrate his. Because Jesus has absolute authority over all things, I think we have to recognize that he's the final judge on all things. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus speaks these words. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Jesus is talking about those who know him and those who do not. And the king will say to those on their right, I love this, that Jesus is also now referring to himself again as king, absolute authority, absolute judge. He says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry? or feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick, or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer to them and say, truly I say to you, those to the extent that you did it to one of the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. You notice this, that, that on the king's word, people are brought in, and cast out. The king alone has final authority over us 
and in our lives. I love how um, Eugene Peterson puts Peter's words in 1 Peter 3.22. He says this, It's Jesus who has the last word on everything and everyone, from angels to armies. He's standing right alongside God, and what he says goes. I love this passage because it demonstrates and it underlines, it bolds, capitalizes Jesus' authority over all things. Over all things. And I think sometimes in our lives, we, we don't see it, we don't understand it, we don't recognize it, but when we see the life of Jesus and, and, and the claims of Jesus where he says, there's not anything that is excused from my authority, then we have to believe that when we go through these moments of life that we don't understand that Jesus has not abandoned us and it's not that his power is too weak to step into that moment for us. We wait and we watch and we trust. But because Jesus is also the absolute judge over all things, that he's the final judge on all things, I love this as well. As king, Jesus has the position of mercy giver. As king, Jesus also has the position of mercy giver. That he's the final judge and also he's the final authority on mercy. Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, Jesus demonstrates this all the way through the chapter, really. He says this, getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city and they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine this moment? Maybe the paralytic didn't know that he needed his sins forgiven, but Jesus did. The paralytic thought that his greatest need in that moment, his greatest concern in life was to be healed so that he could walk. That's why his friends brought him there. Jesus sees something deeper. He sees something greater. And he says, your sins are forgiven. We know the rest of the story through the gospels, the, the Pharisees and religious rulers, they, they question Jesus' words. And, and as they're questioning Jesus' words, they're thinking to themselves, how can someone say your sins are forgiven unless you are from God? And Jesus answers their thoughts. And he says, I know what you're thinking. Uh, one, uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? And two, actually anybody can say that because they can't demonstrate it. So let me force this man to get up and walk, demonstrating his greatest need is met by me. Jesus comes to forgive sins. He says this, and later on in the chapter, it's the same chapter, chapter 9, verse 10, and it says, Then it happened as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came. And when they were dining with Jesus and his disciples, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, is it, not those who, uh, is, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go out and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I have come to be king, to demonstrate and, and give mercy. That's why I've come. 
I wonder if some of us are paralyzed spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, even by things in our life that Jesus wants to free us from. By things that Jesus wants to speak authority over. By things that Jesus wants to demonstrate his power over. I think so often we, we, we walk through life and we experience the brokenness of this world. And maybe we just think to ourselves or say to ourselves, it is, it is what it is. I struggle in this way, in this thing, because that's my lot in life. That's, that's what I was given. That's what this is. This is the, what this, or maybe even I made this decision. I struggle because I chose this years ago and now I'm reaping the benefits of it or reaping the consequences of it. But I wonder if we really believe that Jesus is king over all things, over physical things, over emotional pain and hurt, relational pain and hurt, over spiritual things. I wonder if we really believe that Jesus is king over and has the ability to relinquish mercy for things in our life that we can't even speak out loud. The things that the enemy might be coming at you right now, the things that the enemy wakes you up at night with. I wonder if we would believe that Jesus is king over those. I wonder if we would believe that Jesus is king over even things like mental health. I wonder if we believe that Jesus is king over all things. And I wonder if we would allow Jesus to simply sit on the throne to which he belongs and for us to simply bow. Say, Jesus, we, I, don't, I don't even see how this is possible, but you say that you, all authority has been given to you. All authority has been given to you. I, it seems like this is beyond your authority. It seems like you exist in this realm, in this problem, in this sin that I have, the, the thing that I've never been able to beat in my life, the thing that I'm chained to. It seems like something that I cannot overcome. But you say you have all authority, all power. Can you break that chain? Can, can you break that curse, Jesus? Jesus, I've struggled in, in this way. Can you sit on the throne? I, I love this um, image of uh, you know, kingship, uh, which was brought to us, you know, hang on, by Disney, okay. uh, the Lion King. All right, the Lion King. This just g gives so much, like, reference and also uh, just this picture of kingship. You, you have this king, Mufasa, 
right? Who, who like rules and reigns. And, and if you've seen the movie, you know, like he's a good king. He like, he loves his people. It's seemingly he loves his kid, like Simba, who has been born into this uh, kingship, right? And so Simba gets into some problems. That's where the analogy falls apart a little bit. Uh, we'll just forget that one. Uh, but Simba uh, goes away into exile, right? And he, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of hanging out with uh, the, the, uh, the low lives of the, the safari or whatever, you know, the land and all that kind of stuff. And his uncle Scar uh, contests his throne. You know this story, right? He, he murders his, his father, he contests his throne and, and he begins to rule and darkness overtakes the land. And, and then there's this moment in the Lion King where, where Simba rises to contest the throne again. And what he comes back, he comes back because someone has convinced him. He says, no, the, the throne is yours. You just have to take it. So there's this great battle. And Simba uh, takes uh, and, and defeats Scar. But it's not until the moment where he's standing there and Rafiki, this monkey, you know, this weird monkey, uh, takes his staff and he points to Pride Rock. Do you remember this? It's like Simba ascends up to Pride Rock and he lets this massive roar out and all the lions and all the animals with him. And it's at this ascension that Simba claims the throne again. I would make the case in, in a weird way, you know, like as Jesus walks through life, he claims that he's king. He claims he has power and authority over all of these things. 800 years prior, Micah writes, there's gonna be a king born from Bethlehem. There's been many people in life that have said, I'm great. There's been many people in life that have uh, stated their own kingship. None of them have risen from the dead. None of them have ascended death itself and risen from the dead. So when Jesus rises from the dead, when we see this picture of the king who was contested by death and hell itself, defeat it and raise up and say, I told you when I said that I was king and I had authority over all things, my resurrection proves it. When I told you that my kingship and my power knows no end, my resurrection proves it. I was born this king, but my resurrection proves it. So I just wonder today, I wonder what's the place that you need to step off the throne and allow Christ to be seated on it? I wonder maybe if the Spirit is speaking to you even now. There's a place that I need to give over to God. Maybe a place that you're holding on to, or maybe a place that something is holding on to you. And you simply need to go to the throne and say, Christ, would you be the king here? Jesse's gonna come lead us, but I'm gonna ask that you would reflect here, and actually, I'm gonna ask that you would respond. Each week we have prayer partners in the back ready and willing to help you pray. We ask our prayer partners to, to simply pray with you and to pray for you.
follow up with you maybe in the week, but this might be a place where you simply just, just when we begin to sing, walk back to the back, find a prayer partner and say, I need to ask Christ to be king in my life. I need to ask Jesus to step on the throne in this place in my life. It could be over sin, it could be over brokenness, it could be over something that you literally have and you know it, have no control over and yet you fight for it and you say, Jesus, I, I literally have to take my hands off. And I need you to step in, sit on the throne, because you are king, and you're king over all. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you are king, and that you're king over all. That through your death, your burial, and your resurrection, you have proved that there's not even one thing, not death or hell, that it's absent from your authority. So Jesus, as king, would you step into these dark and lonely and difficult places in our life? And would you rule and reign there? Lord, for those of us in the room who are afraid even to bring you the things. Would you speak gently into the hearts right now and even through your spirit remind us, Lord, that you already know and that you extend this invitation that those who are weary and broken to come to you and to find rest. We know you're a good king, Jesus born this way, the only king. And so it's in your name that we pray.